Welcome to Saga Briefs, where we're looking into the stories behind the sagas. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And in this companion series to Saga Thing, we investigate evidence and stories that go beyond the sagas into the world in which they were made. And sometimes, we're fortunate to be joined by an expert on some aspect of the sagas and their world. And much to our delight and good fortune, we're joined by one of those experts today. Dr. Johanna Katrine Friedrichsdotter holds a position in the Rare Books and Archives Department at the National Library of Norway. She's also the author of a new book on the women of the Viking world. Yes, the book is titled Valkyrie, and it's a remarkable read. Welcome, Johanna. Thank you ever so much, John and Andy. I'm holding up a copy for everyone to see, which is going to be a tremendous help on an audio podcast. Yes, I'll hold up my copy as well. Here you go. Can you, can you hear it? Well, you'll just have to imagine the, the cover with this um, striking young lady with a well. spear and a, a shield on the cover. And of course, we're going to include links for how to purchase the book in our show notes. And that's where you can also see a stunning image of this beautiful cover. Uh, but let's get to our first question. Johanna, your book makes the point that the work of women in a Viking Age community has long been dismissed or marginalized as the monotonous running of a farm. And in fact, the the sagas that we discuss on this podcast often have very little to say about the life of women unless they are actually getting involved in conflicts, either directly or indirectly. So Mm -hmm. what does the day-to-day life of a Viking Age woman actually look like and how do we know? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it would have varied quite a lot, but um, most women probably lived on a farm uh, with uh, sort of maybe around 10 people living on it. And I'm sure they would have been working from dawn to dusk. And the work was varied, but um, th- th- there was obviously some some division also between maybe social strata. Um, but they were pregnant a lot of the time or breastfeeding. And so they were, you know, just um, because the book is sort of structured along the life cycle, the they would have been raising little Vikings, um, <laughs> future Vikings. And... Um, and then once once a child was sort of old enough to begin to learn some of the tasks, I'm sure that the girls were learning, you know, textile work and, and food preparation and all kinds of things, um, as, as well as, you know, social skills and the kind of wisdom that you need to be a successful Viking woman. And making the textiles, for example, if women hadn't been constantly spinning and weaving and sewing the mm-hmm nobody would have had any clothes right and <laughs> and there's the the food preparation and the kind of old view was that women were inside doing that kind of work but i think we kind of now understand much more that they would have been outside doing all kinds of domestic work outside and you know not just like foraging for berries and that kind of thing but also more like physical labor and then one of the things that I kind of emphasize is some of the labor that happens indoors isn't just you know like preparing food and and so on but it's also kind of being the husband's companion giving advice discussing things over um, dispensing wisdom uh, moderating them and then if there was any kind of you know feast or event that that they Mm -hmm. would have been you know presenting that alongside the, the husband so, so they're much more integrated into sort of all aspects of farming life than maybe the sagas often tell us. Yeah, I mean, I think saga authors are sort of, they're not documenting. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, they're not, um, they're not anthropologists. Um, so they only 
tell us, you know, what people are doing, if it's somehow important to the story or if it mm-hmm. sort of, you know, helps the story. So like in Lux de la Saga, when um, her husband Botle has gone to kill Kartan, uh, she says, well, that's a really good uh, morning's work. You've killed Kartan and I've spun, you know, so and so many elves of of yarn <laughs> and so that that's kind of the author um comparing mm-hmm. you know their work uh, in a way right. i, I want to follow up on that because it it mm-hmm. does seem like throughout your book and from what you've just been saying there's a uh, sense that material culture is to a large degree women's culture right? that uh the making of uh objects the fabrication and maintenance of most mm-hmm. of daily life whether it's food or tools or clothing or the sails that vikings need to go on their raids Right. That's mm-hmm. mostly the work of women. Um, so I want to follow up on that a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. One of my favorite parts of the book is your insight into how material culture intersects with that depiction of women uh, in uh, in culture, in the life of uh, saga figures. Um, take textile production, right? So you've got this introductory meditation on uh, the Valkyries weaving a cloth out of human entrails uh, during the Battle of Clontarf, uh, it's it's explained in Yalsaga. It's it's remarkable and slightly nauseating. I mean, the description oh, I is gets very <laughs> literally visceral, uh, and we know that weaving and textile production is fundamental to the broader economy uh, as well as to running a household. But it's it's so rare to find it the focus of poetry or saga writing, except as a metaphor or, as you've explained mm-hmm. in Lockstyle Saga, as a sort of comparative to the work of men. So how does textile production or, or material culture more broadly, I suppose, uh, shape the argument of what you're doing, especially given that your book is built around the life cycle of women? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's um, it's sort of, as you say, it's all all encompassing, but somehow a little in, invisible. Um, if you think about um, something like the Oseberg burial, which is an extremely high status burial, mm-hmm. um, there's two women buried in it and they have like a big loom in in their grave and um, equipment for you know spinning and weaving and mm-hmm. um, and tablet uh, weaving as well and um, and like so many female graves from the Viking age have these you know spindle whirls or, or tools in some way um, but you don't know really whether that was any sort of identity you know mm-hmm. um, or if it was just something that you did like you know, everybody has to cook um, dinner, um, or most people cook dinner, and like it, it's not really their identity. So I think for some women, you know, just um, textile work was just something that you had to do. So you would like literally not um, go naked. But um, but then there is this stone, um, rune stone from Norway, where it says, you know, it's this woman commemorating her daughter who died. And it says that her, her daughter was the handiest maiden in all of, of that area. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of wonder, you know, was that something that um, you could actually like become, you know, unusually sort of skilled in and mm-hmm. like, um, you, you know, you would sort of partly stake your identity on being really well known as, as, as a textile maker. Um, and I think it's really interesting as well, like when... There's this this grave uh, that I read about in Orkney, and it was an old woman, and she was buried with really lo- uh, lovely high st- status items. And then, so she she seems to have had a very high social status, but her fingers, the, the archaeologist said that you know her, she must have been spinning all the time because um, her fingers were kind of arthritic, mm. and um, and they they interpreted it that way, and so. 
Yeah, I, I think probably, um, you know, that sort of carrying in, into the, the myths in, in a way, like the, the sort of norms um, twisting together yarn, the yarn of fate, right. and so on. I mean, it's, it's really, I, I think probably, as I say, like the attitude to it varied. Um, and, and we have to like maybe make for a few different, um, you know, range of attitudes, I guess. Now, thinking about ranges, um, a lot of the, the work that you do is socially contingent. So, like, thinking about women and their different roles, what might we see if we looked at the daily work of women of different classes? I know in the sagas we see, uh, obviously, you have someone like uh, Halgarder in, in Njal Saga at the top of the, mm. the social echelon. Uh, but then there are obviously women like Krofenkel's servant and all these servant women who uh, get to see things or they're out at the uh, the shielings. Yeah. What, what kind of daily work do we see of women in different classes? Yeah. I mean, if you just start at the top, the sort of, um, you know, I love the image of Gudrun in the, the Eddic poetry where um, she's, you know, had all these losses and, and um, her husband Sigurd, the dragon slayer, has been mm-hmm. killed. And um, and then she remarries and, and then her new husband kills her brothers and so on. And, mm-hmm. and at one point she... Um, she tells the story of all kinds of like past uh, killings in a tapestry that she makes, and um, and you know we know that the Vikings did have these kind of um, tapestries that were very intricate and had like human motifs and you know trees and so on. Like in the Osterberg burial, there is this tapestry um, that has all these like mysterious motifs on it. So that would have been the kind of maybe slightly more like leisurely sort of comparable to maybe you know like 19th century women embroidering or something like that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of highly decorative uh, in- indicative of leisure time and um, but then you know when you go sort of further down the scale you know just having to make all kinds of uh, utility textiles and so on you know I, mm-hmm. I, d- I doubt that that was considered extremely fine <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. high status work um, and then I, I didn't have space to talk about it very much, but the poem Grottasenkur, the song of Grotte, um, the Eddic poem, I think it's so fascinating that um, the poet is describing these two troll women and they are grinding. And in the, in the beginning, you know, they're grinding out gold um, and then they start grinding out an army to kill, you know, the king who's enslaved them. <laughs> and at one point, the poet talks about their bare feet you know, walking through the mud. And so they're, they're just like turning this, this um, mill endlessly. And I, I, I just think it's such an interesting little detail that, um, you know, it sort of gives you an indication of how, um, people at the bottom of the social order probably had it really rough. Um, sure. uh, probably didn't have very long lives or, or comfortable ones. Well, and you just mentioned a, uh, an older woman who uh, her burial revealed uh, arthritic fingers. And mm. I'm just wondering, uh, as a woman would age or as uh, a disability would worsen, and they were less mm-hmm. able to do the physical labor that was expected of a woman, you said from dawn to dusk, yeah. uh, whether the social status of a woman might change because of a decreasing ability to perform that kind of work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of difficult to say for certain, but if you think about, for example, the old foster mothers that you see in the sagas Mm. um, and they kind of get dismissed um, by the the younger 
male, you know, upper class um, protagonists as mm. as just saying nonsense. And you know, like in both in Nell's saga and in Erbiga saga, they they are trying to warn of impending disaster, and they mm-hmm. just kind of get you know dismissed and even kind of gaslighted in a way. Um, yeah. Just and so I I think that sort of tells you that once they yeah they are sort of doing probably their little work comparatively mm-hmm. but they they're yeah they don't it's get a lot of respect it's interesting in in ale saga you see that same thing with ale as he you know he's this great hero and certainly a powerful personality uh, but as he gets older he as you're saying just like the the women you're you're describing he gets dismissed out of hand mm. by everyone around him and no one takes him seriously anymore right yeah and even the servant women are kind yeah, of right, you know just right. shooing him out of the way um, yeah. right, that, getting in the way of their work. Right, yeah. they're 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 doing useful and important work still, and that gives them a status in the house that he can't enjoy. Exactly, it's interesting. Um, mm. I want to. Um, I we we can come back to some of this. I want to also talk about uh, what life would be like for these women uh, when you get away from the farm. Um, in the popular imagination, right, the the world of medieval Scandinavians is defined in large part by travel, right, by mm-hmm. Viking raids, but also just by exploration, by settlement. Uh, so what kinds of positions might women hold on board an ocean-going ship or when they're mm-hmm. involved in a group that's raiding or trying to settle in a hostile land? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, again, the kind of the sources that we have, um, the, there's always going to be the kind of challenges of dealing with with the sagas as literary sources that are, um, you know, distant in time from the Viking Age itself. But um, I I think in the sagas, we just kind of, again, see very little sort of realistic description of life on board a ship. And it's Mm -hmm. always kind of, you know, contingent on... um, something that happens in the plot so i think like isn't it in grete saga where um you know grete is sort of accused of of having an affair with with somebody's wife on the boat um and i i i think you know on these um these these ships i mean i think you know these people who go on the viking voyages or like on the sort of reconstructed viking ships now they say that like you know after a week or something you just almost go crazy because there's just no privacy you know you're just on this quite small ship and you're maybe what 50 people or something or 30 mm. but yeah i mean i guess there's just a lot of sitting around probably <laughs> um and waiting but but yeah i mean i i think that there must have been like a sort of all hands on deck sometimes mm-hmm. especially like when when you get to somewhere that's completely unsettled i don't think that the women were just like sitting around passively I right mean, because that, that's the word that you often see when there's this sort of obligatory like chapter about women or like paragraph or something in the kind of over, or overviews about the Viking Age. And they kind of say, well, women were mostly passive. Um, but mm-hmm. I don't think it was considered passive at the time to kind of, you know, do half of the work that was necessary for everybody just to be fed and clothed. <laughs> and, and especially like... You know, I, I think people are often kind of surprised that the women went along, you know, on the Vinland journeys, for example. And you also see like the, you know, there was that huge um, like mass grave in Repton in Derbyshire, mm-hmm. England, yep. with all the bones. Um, I think it was like 200 and something people in that. And the bones have been 
like sexed as 20% women. And oh, wow. I think that these people are the uh, were part of the great Viking army that, that mm-hmm. was going around in England at the time. And um, and I think, you know, the bones haven't really been analyzed to the point where they are saying anything about like wounds or or so on. Um, mm-hmm. But they have done like, I mean, they've they've proven that they were probably Norse because they they had eaten so much f- seafood. And I mean, they, they can see that on the sort of the teeth. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like, I mean, I, I think in the sagas, you know, there's, for example, in Fosbrera saga, there is this... Um, you know, battle, and then after the battle, um, there there's a woman who's like tending to all the wounded soldiers, um, and you know, somebody needed to be there to do all of the, you know, non-fighting. Um, I don't think mm-hmm. that a lot of women were like trained to fight, um, but they might have fought. Um, but but on the other hand, like just the sort of logistical kind of you know de- uh, <laughs> challenge of 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 traveling with several hundred people over land um, and where mm. are they, you know, what if their clothes rip, who's going to fix that? And, you know, who's mm. going to sort of just organize everybody, rally everyone, you know, if someone's having a crisis, um, you know, you need people to give them a pep talk, maybe, you know, there's <laughs> just so much labor, I think that is kind of um not often seen as much. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say you've you've talked a bit about the difficulty of the sources and stuff like that. And I would say as medievalists, John and I were both very impressed with the interdisciplinary approach to the subject of your book. Yes. You, you managed to glean a great deal of evidence from so many different types of sources and across traditional academic disciplinary boundaries. It's really impressive. So can you can you share a little bit about the challenges a scholar faces, uh, especially a scholar of the Viking Age and early medieval Europe, when trying to navigate and collate all that source material to arrive at some kind of meaningful insight into mm. the aspects of medieval culture? There's a lot yeah. to juggle there. Yeah, there is a lot to juggle. I mean, I, I think... Um, you know, I, I'm trained as a literary scholar and I sort of, I think that that is a very valuable training and I don't want to sound, <laughs> you know, too arrogant or something, but I, I do think that recognizing, you know, in the sagas when something is a recurring trope, for example, or like when you see kind of how characters are doing things that are um, like so obviously you know, the, the, the author is trying to convey a cultural norm, but they mm-hmm. do it sort of indirectly. And so I, I do think that, um, you know, whatever uh, field you're originally from, I, I, I think there's been a lot of really good work um, done to increase our understanding of like mm-hmm. the culture and the norms of the Viking Age in, in mm-hmm. literary studies and, and, um, and then history, obviously. But then you kind of you have the archaeological sources and the the picture stones in Gotland mostly and then the rune stones um which are you know all over the viking world but really concentrated in Sweden and and to some extent Denmark and i mean the the rune stones are really the the sort of only words of the vikings themselves and yeah. so we, you know when you kind of have all of these sources you you just really have to try to, well, <laughs> like just read up on the fields and mm. um, and understand. I mean, I, I think no one can really be expected to be a specialist in literally 
every single <laughs> discipline or every single source, you know. So I think just sort of being able to, um, you know, just see what are the main issues here, what do I need to be ca- careful of. And, and one thing that I did really find useful as well was teaching courses where like you know i taught norse mythology for example and there you are using kind of mostly um edic poetry and snorri and mm-hmm. some skaldic poetry and so on but then you know i would try to bring in all of this different evidence um but but sort of try to give the students the tools to be able to analyze themselves but you know when right. you have so much so many sources and everything it, it it is a challenge but just talking to students about it it kind of yeah. helps you just focus okay yeah this this is actually the main point here isn't it mm-hmm. um so yeah. yeah i think one of the most rewarding things about teaching these kind of things to students is especially the medieval stuff is just how many sources and how many angles you have to approach yeah. a subject from it really is a great tool for teaching critical thinking Exactly. Mm-hmm. And and this kind of, you know, trying to explain and get them to understand, like, how do we actually know what we know? And how do we arrive at that? And like, there are some things we will never know for sure, but we can at least kind of try to work our way to the most mm-hmm. likely scenario and so on. Johanna, I, wa- I want to call you out a little bit. I feel like you're being a little modest here because oh. when you say, oh, there's all this great work that's already been done and you're just sort of going in and looking at it. I mean, in this book, you're tracing... An historical move from the actual Viking Age uh, of the 8th to 11th century through to early documentary writing in the following centuries, and then to saga production and art of the later Middle Ages. And that arc is happening alongside the erasure of women as part of the story of history as you go through those centuries. Uh, or even, in some cases, the active villainizing of women by emerging Christian writers writers, mm. uh, and by the emerging culture. So you're having to do a lot of work to use these sources while also remaining somewhat skeptical of the motives behind these sources. Mm -hmm. That's a difficult juggling act to perform. So how do you fight those erasures or fight that, uh, those implicit assumptions of the culture when you're doing scholarly work in a field like this? Yeah. Thank you. Um, I guess, uh, one, I mean, I guess one technique I would say is kind of just try to switch, um, I mean, I, I think just the older I get and the more experience I have, I just try to switch um, perspectives and especially maybe being raised in Iceland, uh, you kind of read the sagas from the perspectives of the protagonists. Um, and mm. so you have to, you're kind of often, in, not like actively maybe, but um, there is this sort of degree of like worship of people like Gunnar and <laughs> Njautl and so on yes. and, and and you're sort of meant to admire them and then when you as I say like you kind of I felt like especially when I was teaching American undergraduates who just didn't really have a stake in any of this mm. um, and they were just so refreshing they they would just call them entitled yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you would kind of go oh yes they actually are <laughs> you know I, re- I remember my my students being so horrified by like Gisle and Gisla Saga who would kind of steal <laughs> you know when he was an outlaw and he would steal food but it was okay because he's you know Gisle and he's such a hero and they would just go oh you know no he's an asshole <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I just I just really loved that so yeah I mean I, I think um 
just trying to kind of see things from different perspectives mm -hmm. and you know what is the 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 sort of goal of the the author slash narrator here um and I, I think just the more you kind of become maybe experienced as a literary scholar you um you're able mm -hmm. to see what the author wants you to think more mm, yeah. um and and yeah like a lot of scholars have just been kind of like gradually like sort of deconstructing this whole um yeah sort of normative perspective i think um mm -hmm. and and just engaging with lots of other scholars um yeah and just just questioning questioning the author's motives yeah i would yeah. say I think if literary studies teaches one thing it's it's to have a healthy dose of skepticism in anything that you uh, approach <laughs> exactly yeah but yeah. but also like um you know sometimes it's even the translations that you know sometimes mm, there's true. not even like I, when I was reading Saxo Grammaticus, um, I mean, I'm my my Latin isn't that good, and Saxo's medieval Latin is like notoriously difficult. So I, I was um, reading that account where Odin, you know, rapes Rinta, and um, and I was reading it in translation, but then I wanted to try to work with the original, and um, and I discovered that the translator had. You you know translated the word describe uh, used to describe Rinda as like obstinate. So she's trying to resist Odin's you know advances, and, mm -hmm. and that's apparently obstinate. But then the same adjective had been used about a, a man in another part of the text, and then um, he was just being brave. And <laughs> <laughs> so you also kind of have to be really careful um, yeah. to go to go to the original sources and, and just be really critical. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. Right. So on the one hand, you're having to work with literature that you have to take a healthy dose of skepticism for. On the other hand, you're bringing in things like burial evidence that uh, for a non-expert would seem like a much more kind of objectively uh, trustworthy set of sources, right? Uh, that and I say to a non-expert, because mm. yeah. <laughs> I can already see the look on your face. No, uh, no, I'm not. But, uh, I wouldn't claim to be an expert. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, that that evidence can be valuable thing for things like dress or status or even mm. that vexed question of women warriors that we referenced earlier. Right? Things that maybe uh, don't show up explicitly in the sagas very often. Um, but at one point, you're even able to do things like compare the burial goods of a woman burial uh, at Peel, I think, with mm -hmm. the elaborate dress of Thorbjörg Littlevova in Eric's saga, uh, which uh, our listeners might remember Thorbjörg. She was the uh, prophetess who insisted on a cushion of white chicken feathers uh, yeah. before she would tell anybody's fortune. Uh, so As you would do. <laughs> of course, of course. I mean, if you're going to sit down. Uh, uh, so you're clear that the, the saga's description of Thorbjörg's outfit might very well just be an invention of the author. Uh, but how much can you draw out about the appearance or the mm. lived experiences of women from things like burial evidence? Yeah. Uh, and how do you combine that with saga evidence? Yeah, I mean, it's really um, tricky, I think. And I mean, it was uh, when I started reading about burials, the kind of more hardcore stuff, the the archaeological um, literature. I mean, I it was a really steep learning curve and I learned a lot of um, new technical terms and so on. And I, I, I do think that um, there's a lot of really interesting work, it seems, going on in terms of reevaluating a lot of the kind of presumptions that had been 
considered um, pretty secure, um, you know, for for decades. For example, these um, women who are buried with brooches that are either from Britain or Ireland, mm-hmm. and people had always like assumed that. Um, they had been brought back by their husbands or fathers or brothers or whatever as gifts. Um, so they, they had been pillaged, um, over, overseas and then brought back to, to give their wives or, or um, mm-hmm. but then, you know, the, the sort of more younger archaeologists have been saying, well, you know, England and, and Britain and Ireland, they were just a few days away on the ship and mm-hmm. people weren't just going to pillage. I mean, they they were going for all kinds of reasons, and you know there were obviously Viking settlements, and maybe a woman would have actually gone to to these places herself and acquired right. it somehow, like either through trade or or whatever, um, secondhand, you know. And then she would have come back maybe to Norway and died and been buried, and so that whole experience would never have showed. You know, you can't read that in the grave, or you mm-hmm. can't. You can't, um, you know, th- I mean, there's also an example of, I think it's Ruther's mother in Lakstalasaga, and she, like, goes to Iceland and lives there for a few years, and then she goes back to Norway, and then her husband there dies, and then she, like, goes back to Iceland. So it's mm-hmm. like, you know, it, it, these women, they were just kind of, they were quite mobile, and pers- personal circumstances changed, and so right. that's not going to show up in the grave. And again... Sort of, it's not going to show up if she was a really good poet, or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but but also like the burial goods that are there. Um, I mean, people have said, you know, with textile tools, for example, they don't have to mean that she was literally just spinning and weaving all the time. They could mean that um, sort of symbolically that uh, she had a business, like a textile um, production mm-hmm. business, and that this was like. To symbolize that um so i think right. you know just people have just been you know much more open-minded and um just ex- trying to expand you know interpretations um from a very narrow view that was probably more you know conditioned by you know the scholars themselves who were producing mm-hmm. that than the the reality in the viking age Right. On the subject of burials, I think one of the things we both appreciate about your book was the care with which you approach the question of the Viking warrior women or shield maidens. It's such a popular subject, especially today, as we're kind of, I think you, you highlight that we're, mm-hmm. we're always looking backwards for this, this uh, story of female warriors to reinforce our, our own sense of what women are and can be. So you do a nice job of mm-hmm. a- acknowledging the historical plausibility of female warriors that are fighting alongside the men, while at the same time you temper the expectations of the reader. So you kind of uh, <laughs> hit hit both sides really nicely. Such a killer. So joke. I don't know if that's a way of I don't know if that's a way of saying you're riding the fence. I don't think you are. I think you're 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 <laughs> approaching it with that kind of healthy skepticism. Uh, but you do cover several excellent examples, including mm. mythological figures like Freya and the Valkyries, uh, and also literary heroines like Rusla, Lagertha, and and Hervor. So of, you point out most of our sources that include these female warriors, they tend to be set in the distant past. And I think that's one mm. of the keys mm. that I think is, is most interesting about your approach. So we're left again with that question of how to interpret the source materials, right? So can you share a little bit about how you approach this question of the shield maiden's existence in the Viking age and and what conclusions you developed along the way? Gosh, yes. I I mean, I must have gone in about a hundred circles. I I mean, I didn't really feel very strongly 
about the subject. Um, I, I feel like, um, like I don't really identify with, you know, the topic in any kind of personal way. So it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter to me, um, whether there were Viking women warriors, um, in terms of anything that's like relevant today, but I know that it does for a lot of people because, um, you know, if you use the past and like women's oppression in the past to justify women's oppression now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if you say, well, like there were never any Viking warrior women and therefore we can't have women in the military now. Um, like, right. <laughs> or, yeah, you know, if you're trying to use any kind of like argument like that. It, I, I don't see that as very, yeah, valid. But I also don't think that we, um, we should, you know, give any kind of discount on, on like how, how we reach our conclusions just because we really, really want something to have been so in the past. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's I, one of the I've, dangers of literary study is that you, or any kind of studies, you kind of go in with a sense of what you want to see yeah. and then suddenly you see it, right? So you have to be real careful. Yeah. I mean, of course, like when people with different perspectives go and read a text, they're going to notice things that you know, mm-hmm. weren't noticed before. And I would never dismiss that. But at the same time, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just really tricky to navigate kind of not mm-hmm. wanting to sound just like an utter killjoy or something like that. <laughs> and, um, so, I mean, I, I did just try to go through the evidence, like how, um, can we use this evidence? Like, or what does it say? First of all, um, yeah. just try to give, you know, quite a good idea of, you know, what are the kind of different, different sexu- textual sources. So, I mean, on one hand, you know, you have something like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, um, or there's like this monk in Paris who was an eyewitness to the siege of Paris or, mm-hmm. um, and they, you know, they all talk about women being, there among these um, uh, invading Vikings, but they sort of, you know, they make it very clear that the women are not fighting. And mm-hmm. so I think in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, like he, they say that the women were put away, like in a secure location yeah. before battle. And the the monk um, who describes the siege of Paris, like say, says that the women are like egging on the men and they, I think there's also some kind of reference to them getting, like, trying to find some food, you know, to make bread or, or like, I can't remember what it was. But, I mean, it's sort of, I think they would both have said, you know, if the women were fighting. And, um, and these are kind of eyewitness accounts. And obviously they are biased against the Vikings because they're written by their, <laughs> by their, you know, victims. But, but at the same time, um, I think they're more, reliable than something like the the Irish annals which are written like at least a hundred years later probably mm-hmm. and you know they kind of have some of the hallmarks of propaganda and um and so there's there's oh, <laughs> yeah so there's there's this like annal that says that there was the, the, this invasion of vikings and there was like the red maiden was among them and um and like it's just such a short reference and you don't really know how much to do with that really because Mm -hmm. it's written so long after the invasion happened 
And then you have Saxo, um, who just loves to tell all kinds of stories. Like he's really yeah. into myths. And um, <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and when he's talking about like women warriors, they are really in the distant past. But like he obviously is so interested in them in many ways. And, and he kind of has these like, oh, well, yeah, they unsexed themselves when they became warriors. Uh, so he's quite kind of disapproving at times, but he also just clearly is fascinated. And, and at mm-hmm. one point, um, La Gefa, like f- she's flying. And I mean, it's like, you can't really take this as a historical source. <laughs> um, and in the same way, like the Icelandic sagas that have, you know, women fighting and then um, they are really sort of set in the legendary past. And they're, they're, mm. there's like, you know, in Hervara Saga, she kind of goes into her father's burial mound and, and has this long conversation <laughs> with him in the kind of battle of wits and gets his sword and it's like a magic sword. And, you know, like you can't use this as a historical source, obviously, mm-hmm. um, but you, you can do a lot of things with it. But I think they just say a lot more about what people in the 13th century were thinking about uh-huh. than, than like women warriors. So, yeah. 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 Um, I think uh, really throughout the book, uh, you're able to do, uh, you're able to shape these specific characters, these figures out of the source material for us. Uh, hmm. In chapter three, uh, where you're discussing uh, women's adulthood and married life, uh, you take up the story of uh, Gudrith or Brennadotter, uh, who is one of the more important figures in the Vinland sagas. Mm. Uh, and you describe her as the Viking woman embodied, right? yeah. uh, which I think is just, it's, it's a great way of thinking about her. <laughs> uh, what is it about Gudrith that feels so representative of the female experience in medieval Scandinavia or in medieval villages and settlements outside of Scandinavia? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the mobility, obviously not, mm. There were lots of women who never probably left their home region. Um, but the Viking Age is, you know, one of its main characteristics is mobility and mm-hmm. settling in a different, you know, part of the, the, the world from where you're from originally. And, um, so, I mean, she is kind of a descendant of, of people who had been in Iceland very, um, you know, very short. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, it's her grandfather, Vivit, who is, you know, comes among the the people with Eider Dubulka and um, gets his freedom from her. Mm-hmm. And um, and then the, so, I mean, they, they, they're just like extremely recent immigrants. And then, um, so he's, her grandfather is Celtic um, and then, you know, she's supposed to have Norse uh, ancestry as well. So it's like the kind of ethnic mixture of people, I think, is um, something that really happened a lot. Of, uh, you know, people were moving around so much and mm-hmm. like they, yeah, they were mi- mixing, uh, obviously, with, um, you know, different ethnic and social groups. Mm-hmm. And and then she's supposed to be this, you know, fervent Christian, which is obviously... <laughs> Um, something that the the saga author is extremely interested in. Right, um, bit of wishful thinking, perhaps. Probably, but but the kind of I think it's just really interesting the way that they um, describe you know this sort of multi ethnic, multi religious society, and it's not really quite settled. Every, you know, everything feels very much like still in motion, mm. and then she um, she's s- supposed to be very wise. 
Um, I think that's like one of the things that's said about her explicitly. And then she's a skurunkur, which is this sort of word that's used about <laughs> especially women who are just really impressive um, and, you know, uh, being assertive and just not really um, being, you know, timid or suffering fools or so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I really admire how she's depicted as sort of navigating between a lot of big personalities and kind of tricky situations in a way that, you know, nobody is offended and there's no, like, feud right. that breaks out. Like, you know, I think it's it's really impressive. Yeah. One of the trickiest situations she uh, deals with is her husband rising from the dead to mm. uh, right. chat with her, right? She exactly. seems to take that very well. Yeah. yeah, she kind of just deals with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Always, my students <laughs> well, are always happening in Greenland. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. while while Gudrun represents one kind of embodiment of female Icelandic experience or female uh, Scandinavian experience in the Middle Ages, the sagas offer several other kind of quintessential mm. female figures that seem to emerge as, I think, from a literary perspective, anyways, as idealized models of mm. a Viking Age woman mm-hmm. uh, from the 13th century perspective, anyway. Yeah. So I wonder if you could compare uh, Gudrúðr to a few of these, like Unar or Auðr, the deep-minded, mm-hmm. or Auðr Vestin's daughter, the wife of Gisli, who we both like so much. We do. <laughs> I mean, she she gets that line, you know, in Gisla Saga when um, she's been kind of hiding her husband for years, mm-hmm, and yeah. um, he's been on the run. I mean, like, just logistically, you don't really understand how he was able to <laughs> escape um, for so many years. Um, but but she is really the one who is always making sure that he, you know, has somewhere, has shelter and presumably food. Um, and then she, there's this amazing scene when um, his pursuers try to bribe her to give him up. Mm-hmm. Yes. And she takes the bag of silver and then she just slaps the guy on the nose. So it bleeds <laughs> yeah. and says, yeah, re- well, remember this for the rest of your life that a woman has struck you. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> and then think, she does it to him again later on. Yeah. Right? She's also the one who breaks his arm later on. Yeah. It's, I mean, she's just really um, great, you know, as a literary mm. character. And I think the saga mm. authors, they really like women who are loyal to their husbands. Um, mm. yeah. And... I mean, it doesn't really matter if you're kind of leaving any kind of traditional female role as long as it's, you know, in order to help your family, right. I think. Right. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it's it's just astonishing, this character, mm. that um, she, she sort of, at least we, I mean, we really admire this, I think, even though we don't mm-hmm. always like Gisli. But the, right. Yeah. I just I just want to break in a moment here to point out to Andy that uh, Gisli and Al were, were the figures we took as Thingmen from that saga. I, I'm well and aware. Your Thingman Gisli is not coming off particularly well this conversation, <laughs> and my well, Thingman either is coming off very very well. Ooh, dear. So I would say that. <laughs> I, I call into question this idea that Gisli is some kind of bad guy. I mean, we're talking about a saga that's written about family loyalty, and that's kind of his M.O. That's what he does. It's all about family loyalty. That's right. That's, that's right. how he you gets keep, into this trouble. Yeah. You keep trying. Uh. <laughs> my students would not be having that. <laughs> well, my, my students tend to, we re- usually read Gisli and Gretchen together, and Gisli comes off much better when you compare those two. That's probably fair. Yeah. I mean, I think... 
Yeah, I mean, the, I think what my students really disliked was the sort of arrogance of Gisli compared to the mm. more sort of the pathos of Grettir, maybe. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and this kind of idea that, um, you know, he gets cursed and then he can't sleep. And, and right. I think that sort of humanizes him maybe in a way that, like, Gisli never gets humanized. Mm. Maybe yeah. I, like I think he's somehow more vulnerable. I mean, he has obviously Gisli has the dreams with the women and everything, but maybe mm-hmm. because they're all in skaldic verse when he's describing it, it's yeah, just every- it's so like <laughs> doesn't esoteric land as well or something. Students. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway. Well, uh, well I, I'm just delighted that Oyther's coming off so well in this conversation. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I mean, not not all active women get portrayed yeah. as positively as Oyther does. I mean, one of the most polarizing yeah. female characters uh, that saga readers will encounter is uh, Freydis Eric's daughter. Yeah. Uh, the half sister of Leif Eric, Leif the Lucky, for people who know mm. him from that. Uh, whether she's in one saga manipulating her husband into killing a hall full of men and then taking an axe to finish off the women herself, uh, that's the saga of the Greenlanders. Uh, and that same figure, that same woman in Eric's saga is shown chasing off uh, Skraelings and saving yeah. the Viking settlement mm-hmm. uh, while slapping at her exposed chest with a bloody sword. Uh, and very pregnant Freitas, also. Yes. Oh yeah, she's eight months pregnant at that point. Uh, Freitas is going to leave a lasting impression, but how do you reconcile those two lasting impressions of Freitas? I know. I, I, I just, that scene in Grenlandiga saga, it's such a curveball. I, you know, it I mean, is. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, the, the, I think because the other one, the, the one from Eric saga is so kind of iconic and it's really famous and people have, you know, discussed it back and forth. Um, and, you know, is she based on an Amazon or is, is this like, mm. Yeah, where where is this kind of description coming from? But because it's just so unique in in the context of saga literature, mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean, I I think it's really interesting how like I I guess what joins the two accounts is that she's very fearless and and kind of brave, but. <laughs> Um, right. She, she takes the active position when the men are busy being passive or useless. Yes. <laughs> yeah, very much so. You could say that. But I mean, I sort of feel like the, you know, the killing, killing the women that the men are just too, they, I mean, they just won't go there. Um, right. Because it's just seen as such a dishonorable act, I think. And then she kind of does it herself. Um, mm-hmm. In some ways, I don't think it's entirely out of character with, I mean, the kind of ruthless that women can show you know on occasion mm-hmm. but mm-hmm, I think yeah. because our the narrator wants our sympathy to be you know with the, the sort of victims of, of these mm-hmm. crimes um, not because he thinks that we should just uh, sympathize with them because they're human beings but because they were like on his team basically I think <laughs> um, right. maybe yeah I don't know like it's obviously something that you could never prove one way or the other, like whether mm-hmm. this would ever have happened. I mean, but yeah, I do think that there is this kind of level of viciousness in lots of female characters. I feel like she 
just really takes that to the extreme. Yeah, she really does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a little bit of an agenda to Greenland Saga in general. Right? Yeah. It really works to disenfranchise women's stories. The yeah. Eric the Red Saga really is. It's the story of Gudrith, uh, and mm-hmm. Freydis in that story is rescuing the, the Viking settlement. Mm-hmm. In Greenland Saga, it's a much more, the saga really works. Gudrith is robbed of a great deal of agency over the course of the story. Yeah. Freydis becomes a mass murderer. Uh, but it's, <laughs> it's a it's a saga that's very interested in kind of pushing the women's stories off to one side. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, I, 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 you know, when you teach that those two, it's like the students really don't have that much to say sort of. Uh, you know about <laughs> Grand maybe as a whole. I mean, obviously they are interested in that scene, mm. but like there's a lot of material in that saga that's just not very compelling. Maybe <laughs> comparatively to Eric Saga, mm. which is like it just starts right off with, you know, Ednud or either, um, you know, being in this sort of civil war, Caithness, uh, mm, yeah. you know, having a ship built and I. As I said, you know, in the book, like she probably has a sail made or something and mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, escaping and, and like going to Iceland and settling there. And it's it's just mm-hmm. like immediately there's no long prequel where you get like endless genealogy or anything. It just starts, you know, in right in the middle of the action. And then you immediately go to like Guthrie and her story. And um, it's just so compelling as literature, but also... The historical background. I mean, you, mm. you you sort of start talking about like the the kind of you know Viking activity along you know Orkney and Hebrides and Scotland and like why are they there and mm-hmm. yeah you can start talking about like sh- sort of ships and it's very dynamic. Um, mm. yeah. yeah, so it's just a lot of fun. And then the the scene in Greenland when. Um, Guthrie and, and Thorbjörg, the prophetess, have this exchange. I mean, oh, yeah. I think it was actually um, a friend of mine who pointed out on Twitter that this is like the only saga um, that passes the Bechdel test, which is yes. <laughs> two women having a conversation about like something other than a man. <laughs> right. Um, I suppose technically Holgerth and Bergthora pass the Bechdel test when they're insulting one another at the wedding, but it's, that is true. <laughs> yeah, but it's hardly a positive description. No, yeah. no. I mean, I guess they're talking about each other. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of shaming each other. I yeah. mean, I'm sure you could find more situations. I mean, like sure. Yeah, but but it is really yeah. um, interesting though that that there is this sort of there, there's just so many scenes in that saga that are unusual mm. um and yeah have a lot to unpack well there, there are so many fascinating scenes and so many fascinating women in the sagas that we could actually talk to you we, we could have our own podcast just on this subject <laughs> with you and we can come back every week and talk about a different one but yes <laughs> r- rather than do that how about a quick lightning round on some of the women that we'd be ashamed to leave out of this discussion mm. so here's how we're going to do this uh we'll say a name Mm-hmm. And offer a brief description of the woman, basically what saga they were in. And hopefully you can remember uh, who they are. Not you, but the audience. I know you know who they are. <laughs> um, and all you have to do, uh, Johanna, is is offer your brief impression of that woman and anything else you'd like to share with our audience. Mm, okay. Sound good? Yes. All right. So the Let's first the one, we spent uh, about a year with this lady. It is <laughs> Gunnildr, Mother of Kings from yeah. Ale Saga. Okay, <laughs> I think um, that sounds about right. Um, there's 
a lot to say about her. Um, I love that scene in Ailsaya where they're in York. And her mm-hmm. husband is just such a weasel. And, you know, he's... <laughs> a, it has killed their son. And yes. she has ev- she has every right to be vengeful. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, her husband really shouldn't have backed down. And, um, yeah, I think she just... She must have just not believed it when <laughs> when yeah. he kind of... He just, uh, yeah, he... He balks from from giving a, any sort of punishment, really. Mm-hmm. So, Do you think that she gets a, a bad rep in the uh, in the sagas? Um, some of them are overtly misogynistic. I think it's Yomsvikinga saga or something that mm-hmm. says that she, you know, ends up getting thrown into a bog, um, and mm-hmm. you know, she gets sort of accused of sorcery. But I don't think it's always that negative. Um, I think she's complex and she gets away with stuff that, you know, a woman of a different social class would not. Um, yeah. But I mean, I think she's pretty shrewd and um, she's just really complex. And uh, yeah. she mm. um, she just, you know, she's playing the game. I mean, I, th- I think she's a lot like Cersei in, in um, Game of Thrones. Like, she you yeah. know, <laughs> she's not always successful, but... You know, so that's the same as you know many of the male characters, the kings. I mean, they they're all playing this Game of Thrones, but but um, mm-hmm, yeah, but, but yeah. It's interesting that we we say with Cersei or Gunilder because it's almost like because they're female, we look at them differently, even though they're mm. doing many of the same things that men are doing. I think that's probably mm-hmm. true of Freydis uh, Eriksdaughter as well. Yeah. They're, they're doing ve- things that we see men do all the time in the sagas, but somehow it's. Uh, even if it's in a negative light, it's it's more negative because it's a woman doing it. Mm, yeah, I think there is a sort of sense sometimes that, like, not just in the sagas, but um, like now that women are sort of held yeah. to different moral yes. rules, maybe. Um, but yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of the saga authors aren't really interested in making her completely two-dimensional and just like a sort of cardboard villain. I mean, mm, yeah. I think I think they are interested in how power works and how a woman might kind of, you know, because a lot of the king's wives aren't very active in politics. Like they don't really do a lot of stuff. They're they're just like literally mentioned when they get married and then we never hear about them again. But, you know, she's such an operator. And she also like, I think some something that hasn't really been explored very much is that she has a, a poem composed in her husband's honor, and mm-hmm. I mean she's definitely kind of ticking all of these boxes um, oh, yeah. of a powerful mm-hmm. ruler um, who happens to be a woman. But mm-hmm. mm. yeah, uh, our next uh, woman is Thordis Sur's daughter from Gisli's saga. So shifting from Gisli's wife to his sister, who he very protective of yeah yeah i mean i think she is a really interesting character um i mean she's the one who gives him up really as being yeah, the murderer right. and he says well you're not like gudrun Gjukadotir, um who was more loyal to her brothers than um than yes. her husband and mm. um and he's very disappointed but but um yeah i mean i think she 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 doesn't really i mean why would she be loyal to gisle really like what did he ever do for her um, i think she she does succeed in portraying 
loyalty. Yeah. Right? And I think it is a portrayal, right? She's she's performing loyalty first to her husband. Mm-hmm. And then after Gisli is killed, she performs loyalty by attempting to avenge his death. Exactly. And so she's there. she understands that she's in a difficult position where her loyalties are divided. Yeah. Right? And so she's able to perform loyalty when she has to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's, she's really between a rock and a hard place. Mm. And, um, she is. And I thought that um, scene when he tells her that he is, you know, the killer in Skaldic verse, and then he kind of probably thinks that she can't understand it, and she right. <laughs> and she decodes it and and mm. and divulges it to her husband. And I'm, I, I mean, she she's really smart, um, and she's just you know trying to survive. I think. Yeah. And and then I think it's really interesting in Eipikisara when um, you know years later. Um, and her, her husband, no, yeah, so she's married to, what's his name, Burkut or something? Bork, uh, Bork. Yeah, 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 and yeah. then. The, the and, stout, yeah. Yeah, and then Snorre, her son, um, like, grows up and goes mm-hmm. off on this trip to Norway and comes back and he, like, has all these rags on and he's made all this money, but he's, he's deceiving Bork and, um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, reveals himself eventually having, like, swindled him out of his farm, yes, basically. Right. And then Thordis, like, divorces him on the spot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it, it's yeah. just such a kind of statement. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is. <laughs> yeah. Um, next up is, uh, speaking of Herbegir Saga, uh, Thuridr, Snorri's sister. Yeah. I, you have a nice moment in the book all about her. Yeah, I was so interested in her because I, I think when I, like, sort of, I initially read it because I, uh, I was more interested in other characters and and then when I reread it when I was writing this book I just I thought wow she's so interesting because she mm-hmm. um, I mean she's so complicated she's I think she's in some ways like Gudrun Osirstotter um, in that like she definitely isn't interested in lowering lowering her social status you know in in exchange for independence or something like that um she i mean she's used to being kept in style just like gudrun did. um but like she clearly despises her husband she's not you know obviously able to give her consent i mean she's just uh yeah put into this marriage because Mm -hmm. it suits her brother snorre again so, you know, she's married to this man who she considers her social inferior, but she still kind of spends his money. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then she's in love with this this man, you know, since I guess they were teenagers, um, who just goes off and he's just being a Viking or whatever. And mm-hmm. and then he comes back and, um, you know, there you kind of have this sense that in another saga... Like he could have um, just set up a farm and like offered her an alternative to her marriage, and she could have just mm-hmm. divorced that husband of hers and and you know gone to him. But he never gives her a way out, and so she just stay, stays in this marriage um, until until that husband dies. And yeah, it's just like a really kind of complex um, portrait of her. And she does um, end up raising a, a son who mm. is by everyone's account, probably not her husband. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, which and suggests, again, a certain amount of she's making her own decisions about what she wants out of her life. Definitely. Uh, yeah, it doesn't necessarily conform to the marriage that she was put in. Yeah, and I mean, she's yeah. like kind of within the constraints that she's under. Um, 
And I mean, I, I feel like the saga author doesn't really judge her. Um, mm, no. You know, and so, I mean, you're able to make up your own mind. Like she obviously, um, she, you know, you can kind of condemn her maybe for, you know, she's really greedy, like in terms of, um, you know, Thurgana arriving to Iceland with all these nice things. Right. And yes. she's really like, pestering her for all the nice objects mm-hmm. that she has and then Thorguna dies and puts this kind of injunction like you have to burn the textiles and Thurid like flouts that and um, wants the textiles for herself and like she's obviously mm-hmm. just really into kind of flaunting her status and everything yeah. but but like again like that's the rules of that society um, <laughs> yeah. you know and so you, you can't really see her as some kind of villain or like too flawed um in Mm -hmm. a way because Mm -hmm. she she's just kind of playing by the rules of her society um and you you kind of feel like if this woman had had opportunities like uh, you know other than just get married to to some guy who was your brother's supporter (laughs) you know um yeah so i i feel like that it's it's um it's just a, a portrait of a woman who, yeah, she's complex and and I just feel like she's she's real in a way. <laughs> mm-hmm. And along those same lines, and you mentioned her just a moment ago, Gudrun Olsvifer's daughter. Mm, yeah, from I mean, Lexdala Saga. The, yeah. we'll, we'll eventually get to her on the podcast. We haven't gotten there yet. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. she really is again so complicated because. I mean, she can be really charming and, you know, she's very intelligent. She's she's supposed to be, like, Iceland's most impressive woman. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and she's in love with this young man. And they're this, like, clearly they're supposed to be the kind of golden couple, like, you know, Brad and Angelina or something. And, <laughs> and, um, and then that doesn't work out as, like, life often you know is and mm, yeah. and then sh- she gets so angry at him for i mean she wanted to go to norway with him and um and he just calls her foolish and like she clearly i mean it's like she has this idea that she, you know iceland's too small for her and mm. she needs to get out of this like <laughs> dump you know and go to norway mm-hmm. where there's a king and a court and everything and you know she wants to be seen at the court i think and then um, and then Kertan really puts her into her place and says, you know, you've got to manage your expectations and you're just going to be here and take care of your aging father and brothers <laughs> who are How like too How many poor young. people from small towns have heard that? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I think she just, she never gets over this really. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's just really easy to identify with like how frustrated this this character feels that like her lack mm. of um opportunities or like possibilities really because i mean it's it's very clear that um yeah the men are going off to to court in norway and and showing off with their swimming competitions and whatever and <laughs> and like that's not an option and, and it's just so startling really that like the that the question is even be raised, you know, that she she's feeling, you know, aggrieved about this and mm-hmm. and like just that she wouldn't 
just the, the just the fact that she even asks to go and you know has the kind of aspiration and ambition maybe um but then yeah i mean and then this is the beginning of like that long-standing feud between her and him and then she marries his best friend and um who's always the kind of sidekick who's like slightly less handsome <laughs> and like less talented and <laughs> and um and then Kathleen comes back and and discovers that they're married and then they have this feud that is just really nasty and horrible and she i mean she's mm. really petty um like she steals mm-hmm. the beautiful headdress that um you know, the the sister of the king of Norway had sent Kjartan with back to Iceland to give to his wife, and um, <laughs> mm-hmm. so it's it's yeah. just really, really. She's such an interesting figure, like psychologically, and yeah, um, yeah. I mean, and the saga she, spends a lot of time on her in a way that a lot of other sagas don't spend on the female characters, which is. Uh, it's refreshing to read that it, one. Exactly. Yeah, and and again, I mean, just. These aren't sort of cardboard figures like they're three dimensional. And yeah, like we don't like some of their choices. um, And I don't think the the saga author approves either, but they they don't really judge them. um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Yeah. it's Um, from that same saga. We have uh, Melkorka, the the slave Mm. woman who is so important to the narrative. I know. I mean, I, I don't think we ever get into her psychology as much as these other women that I was talking about. Yeah. But but there is this kind of amazing, you know, self-worth in her and like defiance of, um, mm. you know, she is enslaved, but um, she has this strength in her that she's not going to let, you know, anyone tell her that she's not worth anything. Um, yeah. And, and so there is this... Um, scene where like so she's living in the household of Huskulder who had bought her at a slave market um and you know it again sort of we're just supposed to go along with this and not really question you know slavery as an institution or something and right you know isn't she lucky that she got to be bought by this uh, excellent uh man but anyway so he um takes her back to Iceland and then um, she's, you know, clearly extremely, I don't know, beautiful and um, impressive. And then his wife is really resentful, like, like very understandably, <laughs> that <laughs> that he's essentially ki- keeping this woman there as his, you know, sex slave. And um, mm. I mean, she's in this situation where she obviously doesn't have control; she doesn't have choices. And the wife is resentful of her. But like she should really direct it at him, who's <laughs> right. who's the one who's yeah. causing the situation. But um, but there's a scene where Melkorka is supposed to be kind of tending to his wife Jorun as a, a servant, and uh, take she's pulling off her socks, I think, and and then Jorun like slaps her <laughs> on the cheek with the socks, and then that sort of yeah. all hell breaks loose. And then yeah, eventually, would, yeah. yeah, and then Haskeldur decides that, like, he he has to solve this somehow. And so I think he eventually, like, sets her up on her own farm. And then I think she marries, like, the man that he puts in charge of that farm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, like, the, the fact that she's supposed to teach her son, Olaver, by him, um, Irish. And then when he, like, is setting off on his 
you know, obligatory Viking expedition, um, she says to him, like, well, now you, when you go to Ireland, you can actually communicate with people there because I have taught you Mm. Irish and please um, give my best regards to my old nanny, (laughs) you know, and then he ends up in Ireland and obviously he's received, you know, very well by the Irish court and the king and everything. Yeah. And he finds the old nanny and she weeps with joy. And, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's such a beautiful story. Um, it is. Yeah. There's something almost, not that that specific story happened, but there's something authentic in what that story is trying to uh, reveal about the interaction between people that were brought over to mm. Iceland or to Norway as yeah. uh, mm. slaves or captives and then their, their connection with their home world and how their lives evolve over time yeah. um, in and this new place. Exactly. Yeah. And there's not a huge amount of interest in the humanity of those people who, who yeah. were enslaved and brought over. Um, but this this author is clearly very interested in that and just in, mm-hmm. interested in women's perspectives yeah. and you know the perspectives of people who aren't just the the kind of the very small ruling sort of top of the the higher social right, hierarchy. The elite, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the last one for the not so lightning round is uh, Helga <laughs> from yeah. Baldur's Saga. Yeah, I I asked you to put her on that list because <laughs> I think she's um, I mean she's such a favorite of mine in many ways, and I think Baldur's yeah. Saga is a saga that kind of tends not to be taken in you know the kind of classic Icelandic sagas the kind of greatest hits that you would put on a syllabus or something right um but there is a very good English translation of it available and um and it has some kind of really folkloric features and Mm -hmm. it doesn't really conform to the kind of more normal structure of a saga because of the yeah. kind of more sort of folkloric episodes. Um, and I, my argument for sort of including it in the book was that, like, this is all literature. Um, so, you know, the fact that there's more sort of verisimilitude in some of the more classical sagas doesn't mean that they're not like literary creations. And, right, right. Um, and their authors just like for some reason don't include the more folkloristic um, aspects mm-hmm. um, sort of as much I mean they are there sometimes but they're just not as present but in Barada Saga um, it's just a saga that's interested in people who aren't quite as successful as like the kind of normal protagonists of a saga who are usually like they just show up in Iceland and establish a farm and like they immediately get into some feud or something. But, you know, they, I mean, nothing seems to be going that badly for them in terms of, like, in the same way as in, in Barvasara, where, like, they don't really, the family in the saga, like, they, they don't really f- quite find their place in that society. Um, they're not really at the top socially. Um, Bardur, you know, there's like he he loses his son doesn't he and then he kind of disappears into yeah. the mountains and yes it, you know it's like you know does he have mental illness or is this some kind of depiction of that and then with Helka there is this extraordinary um scene where she's 
playing with some kids. Like, they're all probably, like, in their early teens, maybe. I mean, the saga mm-hmm. doesn't specify. But um, she's on... They're all on the beach, and they're playing some kind of game. And there are all these icebergs floating right off the beach. And... Um, and then the boys are losing against the girls and they can't handle that. And so they get really aggressive and then Halka is kind of on the back foot and she ends up kind of going onto this iceberg and then it floats away um, and it floats all the way to Greenland. Mm. And <laughs> It's a long trip. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then she ends up like in Greenland and some of the characters are, you know, characters who are familiar from from Eriksa, for example. And um, and then there's just this terrible thing that happens. She, like the saga sort of says that there's this woman, uh, man called Skegge and he just basically takes her. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, it's sort of interested me that like in some of the scholarship, people are not really sure how to talk about this, but like, mm. you know, because she's so young, I actually say that he grooms her and mm-hmm. um be- mm. you know she's only probably like 12 13 14 maybe yeah. and he's an adult and so she becomes his kind of i don't know what to call it like concubine or mm. basically yeah. like she's like his sex slave um and then he like discards her when it no longer suits him and then she's obviously a fallen woman like her yeah. reputation so she can't marry respectively and then the, the saga kind of follows her for some years where she's just kind of roaming about in Iceland and she like works as a servant on some farm and like somebody tries to rape her and like it's just such a sad story how she like mm. she kind of unravels um, and I think it kind of gives you a perspective on some of the people you know as I say who didn't do as well as Gudrun yeah. or Surustok did yeah. or yeah. or Thurid or yeah. somebody like you know how life might have been for them and and mm-hmm. especially yeah. maybe for women um, just this kind of constant presence of, of like sexual violence and so on mm-hmm. yeah. So, yeah and Helga ends up retreating from society entirely yeah. eventually doesn't she yeah she kind of ends up like um, her father that she um, she sort of slowly just unravels and then I think the last scene in which she appears she's actually like in the mountains in the cave with all the mm. other trolls and they're having a feast or something oh um, how interesting Jeez. yeah it's just really sad yeah. yeah well listeners who are interested in that saga that uh, once we finish Hort saga uh, Bardar saga is the, the next one that we're going to be doing so oh really well, that's right that's on the list oh good yeah. yes yeah Yes, yeah, so, so we'll so be we'll, giving we'll that get some time. Exactly. Yeah. I'm so pleased. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we let you go, mm. Johanna, uh, we have one last question that we try to ask all our guests mm-hmm. on Saga Thing. Uh, what is your favorite saga? Oh, I was dreading this. <laughs> yeah, it's too hard. It's not really a fair question. No, I mean, I would say like it kind of, it really changes um, all the time. Mm. And sometimes it's um, actually a saga that we haven't touched on now that I think of it. The the saga of the Sworn Brothers, Fosbrada saga, oh, yeah. which I think is really subversive and it's really interested in yeah. women as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do think Erpige saga has 
kind of become one of my favorites, really. <laughs> Probably a different saga if you ask me tomorrow. <laughs> if I have to go with Fair my enough. gut, I would usually go with, with Erbegi Saga just because, I don't know if it's because of, uh, it's one of the first ones that I started reading and, and really appreciating what the sagas have to offer. Uh-huh. Or if it's just such a dynamic, interesting story that hits so many different uh, fascinating points uh, mm. from from the politics and mm. history to the the supernatural stuff. And of course, you've got this the uh, half a ghost seal in there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fantastic <laughs> stuff. I know it really is um, very varied. And it, as you say, it hits so many different things. And I think one of the interesting aspects of it is like when you're, as you mentioned, the politics, it doesn't sugarcoat anything not that any saga does but there is sometimes this kind of veneer of respectability that like the author of Erpika is kind of saying like no these people are just thugs and (laughs) you know and like this idea that there was justice and like the rule of law and so on like when push comes to shove that's not really how it worked and you know people just would strong arm their um their neighbors you know and and like the way that these these people like Thorir and and Mauvali gets treated and mm-hmm. um yeah i mean i think that saga is really interested in you know what is justice and yeah, and like from the perspective of different people and like f- from the perspective of women as well well thank you again for joining us johanna Thank you so much for having me. Our listeners can pick up a copy of her latest book, Valkyrie, The Women of the Viking World, online from Bloomsbury or wherever good books are sold. We'll include some links. And if you want to dive a bit deeper into the lives of women in the Viking Age, you can also check out her other book, Women in Old Norse Literature, Bodies, Words, and Power. And that one's also quite good. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and with that, our interview with Johanna, Katrin Friedrich's daughter, comes to an end. But we'll be back soon with the second part of Horth Saga, which is quite exciting. Until then, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. Oh,